Welcome to the day of Pentecost. Uh, it's the day, it's a very important day for the church. And I do like every holy day to review the previous holy days. I know it seems like, especially in the end times, I feel like there is a, uh, a, a drive by some here and there who want to hear something new. It's like, please teach something new, something we haven't heard before. And you say, if you watch them long enough, as they're saying, we just, it's always the same old thing. It's just, it's just, I want to hear, I want to hear something new, something exciting, just something that, that people don't always talk about. And they're scratching their ears because they have itching ears. Uh, they long to hear something new. Whereas I think if you look at the history of the church, one of its greatest difficulties hasn't been uh, that it needs more new. It's the forgetting of what is old, the forgetting of that which has been established. And God himself gives us the very same holy days every year. He doesn't say, okay, what year is this, 2017? All right, then uh, the first day is going to be rabbit day this year and uh, something like that. It's always Passover, the days of unleavened bread, Pentecost. Etc. So it's nice to review and we should review. God wants us to review. And so very quickly, kids, if you're listening, this is what you need to know. Uh, the first holy day or the first, we'll say first festival, right? The first day that God sets apart for some kind of lesson in this string of his festivals is the Passover. Picturing, simplifying, Christ choosing to die for us. Uh, he died for our sins. What's the only possible response to Christ's death for us and for our sins. It is to repent and to turn to him and to accept that. And that's pictured by the days of unleavened bread. Where we, in response to his sacrifice, the Bible says we love him because he first loved us. Well, Passover, he first loved us. So unleavened bread, we then love him. We turn aside from the things of the past and turn away from them and turn to the things of God. Picture by putting out leavening and taking in unleavened bread. And then that enables the next festival, the day that we're celebrating together today, uh, the day of Pentecost, which pictures the giving of God's spirit, which happened in mass for the church almost 2,000 years ago as they were all gathered together. It's a day when we remember that we are first fruits. And in that sense, it actually points to the later harvest as well. Because if there's first fruits, then there are later fruits. There's more harvest to come. And we celebrate the fact that we get to be a part of that initial harvest. That we get to be a part of the first round. That God actually has selected us uh, early. As actually Mr. Nathan really uh, discussed in, uh, I think, a beautiful way just, just yesterday. That God has harvested us Early, we rather we look to the harvest in terms of our resurrection, but we get to be a part of that. The first parts of the harvest of mankind. We remind ourselves today that we're partakers of the divine spirit. That God in his mercy hasn't just forgiven us, but that in his mercy he is transforming us. He hasn't just brought us into his family just to be what we are, but to make of us something so much more and so beautiful. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 3, this passage I, I like to meditate on in these days, the days leading up to Feast of Pentecost, Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read more than I need to because I just can't help myself. It's a, it's a beautiful passage. I just have to go to one verse. 
But I hope you don't mind if we read a little more of the Bible uh, than we had originally planned. In Ephesians chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 14. Ephesians 3 and verse 14, the Apostle Paul says, For this reason... I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. That he would grant you, and remember, he's talking about you too. This was written to those in Ephesus, but it was recorded because it was truly inspired by God for all of us. So he's saying this about all of us. So he says in verse 16, that he, that is God Almighty, would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Now, if you're like me, you see the outer man getting a little bit worse every day. Uh, that's really rough. Uh, it's a lot of fun. I, I'm 47. Some of you think uh, that's, wow, that you're like a spring chicken. Others think, yeah, it's so old. 47, that's like a four. And a seven, you know, I mean, that's really old. And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel it. You know, you look in the mirror and you see a, a whole new spot. And you're thinking, what is that? Is that melanoma? You know, what is it? Uh, you know, it's, what is it? It's, it's wasn't there yesterday. You know, I don't know what these things are. And so we go through these things. And the outer man is indeed just becoming more and more decrepit. But the inner man is being renewed. There's something growing in us that God plans to harvest. That God is working on. And we're reminded of that beautiful fact today and in this passage Uh, again we're uh strengthened with mind through his spirit in the inner man verse 17 that christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of christ which passes knowledge that you may be Filled with the fullness of God. These verses drip with amazing things. And they're so suitable to meditate on in these days. It's like Mr. Dawson kept saying in the sermonette. It's not over yet. You know, you still got time. You have time to to think about these things and meditate on these things. That Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Creator, may actually dwell in your heart. That you may be a part of a process in which you're being filled with the fullness of of God. It is something beyond comprehension. And yet we're told that even explicitly in the passage. Again, in verse 19, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. That is, it's impossible to comprehend this. And yet we have God's spirit. We can tap in to, if it sounds contradictory, that's just the way it is. Knowledge that perhaps surpasses knowledge to know something, to get to know it better and better day by day. And then there's verse 20, which is really what my target was. Where he closes, now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That is just astonishing. I could, I could just spend the sermon, you know, on this particular passage. I don't want to. I want to move on to something else, things that I'm hoping that, that this will lend a certain sense to. But if you do look at that passage, it is absolutely amazing, verse 20. I mean, it would be one thing for him to say, uh, now to him who's able to do above all we ask. Because I can ask for a lot. You know, I mean, I've got, I've got the capacity to ask. Uh, I know God has heard a lot of those kinds of requests. And just to know that he has the chance to do it, but not just do it, to be able to do above what I ask. 
As in, there's nothing I can ask that God says, whoa, Smith, you know, I can do that. But I'm really glad you're not asking for more because I wouldn't be able to pull that off. But I can pull off what you said. No, no matter what I could ask, he can do that. He can do above all that I ask. But it's not just above. It's exceedingly abundantly. As in the most you could ever ask in a lifetime, that doesn't even touch the moat of his power. And then it goes on to, it's not just above all we ask, but above all we ask or think. That is, you can't even imagine something that is somehow beyond his power. He is a being of amazing ability and might and wonder and glory and power. And all of that alone is worth meditating on. And pondering that we don't worship a finite being. We don't worship someone who's limited in any kind of reasonable way. That he is amazing and awesome. His wisdom and knowledge beyond comprehension. But that's not even the most amazing part of verse 20. Even thinking about how amazing he is. And how filled with power and glory and majesty and goodness and right. It says that that power he has. According, it says according to the power that works in us. That as amazing as that power is, that crafted the stars and the skies and the seas and all that are in them, it's actually inside of you. If you've been baptized and had hands laid upon you, it's working in you. It is hard to comprehend. And I, it's, I don't think God wants us to not try to comprehend the incomprehensible. Uh, we, we stretch ourselves and we grow for that. And I find analogies helpful. And I brought something. Hopefully I didn't lose it because it's money. Ah, here it is. All right. I brought a dime. Uh, it's a little dime. It's, uh, it was probably the smallest coin. Maybe we have tinier coins. I haven't seen them. Penny's bigger. So I think sometimes the dime gets upset. Like, come on, I'm worth 10 cents. And the penny, it's bigger. What's... What's up with that? It, it doesn't talk. I'm just kidding. It has no, has no mouth and can't speak. The dime is really small and really thin. I was really worried, actually, that I would drop it on the way here. We have international people watching in different countries, perhaps. It's just an American dime. It's our smallest coin and very light, if you were to feel it. That's why I wasn't even sure it was in my pocket because it, it, it really has virtually no weight to it at all. Okay, keep that in mind. And I want to talk about something, frankly, terrible. I, when I picture power... I know it's a destructive force, but mankind is best at unleashing his abilities, it seems, when it comes to destruction in terms of uh, what he really pours himself into. And I think of the very first atomic bomb that was ever exploded in Nagasaki. Sorry, uh, Hiroshima. So you're thinking, he doesn't know his history. Uh, in Hiroshima, uh, the bomb at Hiroshima just killed thousands and thousands. A massive explosion. The plane that dropped the bomb was about 18 kilometers away and felt the shockwave of this single explosion. The fireball generated by that explosion was 50% hotter than the surface of the sun. It was an unleashing of terrible power on the earth as mankind learns to tap into the laws of nature itself. Uh, I think in terms of TNT, you know, imagine, you know, TNT is like a bomb. It's the one you see in the, in the movie. Someone lights a stick. Oh, you know, that's TNT. You know, it's explosives like that. And you imagine a ton of TNT, just a pure ton of explosive force of TNT. And then imagine 50, 15,000 of those tons, 
10, 15,000 of those tons. And you get a Hiroshima. And how did it do that? It did that by recognizing Einstein's equation that says matter and energy are the same. And that energy can be converted into matter and matter can be converted into energy. And so all they had to do to unleash this terrible power was find a way using uranium and other things to convert some matter into energy. And so the explosion of that force that was 50% hotter than the sun, how much matter was that? Not even a dime's worth of matter. You would actually have to cut this into one-third the size. And even then, that would be a bit too much. The amount of matter that was converted into energy that made the bomb at Hiroshima was less than one-third of a U.S. dime's worth of matter. Now, why do I bring that up? Uh, I do get fascinated by nuclear uh, technology and, and, and the power that's unleashed there because I look at all the matter around me. It's a lot. Uh, there's a lot here, a lot more than just a third of a dime. And then I go out to the universe and I look at the stars and I look at the sky and I, I listen to studies about how many planets there are. And I think of how much matter and how much mass there is, how much energy is that? And it all came from nothing at the will of the ones we now call the Father in Jesus Christ. That's power. That's power. And if you've been baptized and given God's spirit, that power is working in you. And it's working in me. And so why do I bring it up? I bring it up because we often want to tap into that power, right? Don't we want to feel like that's what we're tapping into? That somehow we need to accomplish something. We need to do something. If only I could tap in to God's own power. And today I want to talk about how to do that. How do we tap into the power of God? How do we engage God's spirit in our lives? You know, if you look at uh, comic books, I wasted so much of my life on comic books when I was younger. Uh, I had a lot of good books around me and stuff, but no, I got to read about Spider-Man. So anyway, you know, I spent a lot of time uh, in those. I like the movies. They're nice and short and don't consume your whole life. Uh, my kids and I talk about my comic book years and the guy that, that, in fact, we were talking about just last night. And we'd go to a certain comic book store. And I called him my dealer uh, because he would go and you'd ask about your current comic book and he'd get you hooked on another one. He'd say, oh, hey, you ought to try that one. It's just like the one you like. And I would take it home and it wasn't anything like the one I like, but it was really good. You know, it's so the next thing you know, I was collecting another comic book. My mom was writing another check. Uh, and you hear these fanciful stories. You know, Spider-Man gets bit by a radioactive spider and gives him power. Uh, in the Marvel comics, there's a character Galactus and he has the power to give you the power cosmic. Oh, next thing you know, you're glowing or shooting lightning out of your eyes or something like that. That's comic books. Here we're talking about the real deal. The power that made the very seats you're sitting in, the air you breathe, you yourself, the stars wove together the fabric of reality, the power of God, and we actually have access to it every day of our lives, every moment, anytime we want. How do we engage that spirit? The world will tell you it's a matter of chakras or chants or incantations or something crazy. And what I want you to understand today is it's much more mundane than that. But we need to see these things for what they are. They're not the mundane things God suggests to us. They're ways to tap into what is truly the power cosmic. And so the title today is Engage the Power of God's Spirit. Engage the Power of God's Spirit. 
And I'm going to give you as many ways as I can that I have. You'll probably think of others. I won't tell you how many because I have no idea how many I'll be able to get through. I'm going to try to avoid that trap. Okay, six. I'm aiming at six. I didn't avoid it. Right here, I failed right at the very beginning. Uh, I'm going to do my best to get six. But if I don't get through all of them, it's just going to make you wonder what the others are. And, you know, that works too. All right. Let's talk at the first way to engage the power of God's spirit. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is another wonderful meditation chapter for these days, these days surrounding Pentecost. And by the way, maybe that should be clarified for those who are newer. When we talk about meditating in the church, we're not talking about crossing your legs and holding your hands in a funny pose and letting your eyes roll back in the back of your head and make some funny noises. I used to make that uh, back when I was young and dumb, uh, and I was trying to look like I was meditating because I figured that must mean I was. And I would say the ohm thing, you know, ohm, you know, and stuff like that, until I went to college and had a friend, uh, met someone from India who literally, that was attached to her faith and explain that that word is supposed to invoke all the different he, uh, heathen deities of her faith. It's like one word that kind of unites all of them and invokes all of them. And by then I was learning the truth and said, well, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm not going to, I'm not going to invoke some, some heathen God, you know, in terms of, in terms of what I'm doing, I was learning something better. When we say meditating in the church, in the faith, biblical meditation, we mean not emptying your mind, Right. The goal of meditation is not to be an airhead. Uh, the goal of good, godly meditation is to fill your mind with good and right things, to turn it over in your mind and to think about it. And Romans chapter eight is full of amazing things to fill your mind with for Pentecost. And so for me, it's a good meditation chapter uh, when it comes to Pentecost, something really fill my mind with and to think about and ponder about and talk with others about. So Romans chapter eight and verse twelve. We're talking about how to engage God's spirit. This is going to be one of the efforts that can do that. Romans 8 and verse 12. Therefore, brethren, Paul says, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. You don't owe anything in that direction. He's saying rather a different direction. Verse 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you're going to die. If you eat every time your stomach might say eat, you're going to die. If you just do everything your eyes see that says that looks like that might be a good idea, you're going to die. He's saying don't live that way. We've been given a different kind of guide, a different sort of pull, a different um, regulation of our urges and such. Again, verse 14, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit... You put to death the deeds of the body. You will live. That is one way we engage God's spirit. Striving to give up carnal ways and carnal mindsets and to put to death the deeds of the body. I like the old King James version because I think it says mortify there, uh, mortify the deeds of the body. Because people always say, oh, I'm mortified. Oh, I feel mortified. Does anybody actually say that anymore? People used to say that. Oh, I feel mortified. What it means is I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm dead. I feel like I've just been killed. Uh, it says to mortify the deeds of the body, to put them to death. If you've been baptized, then your baptism was a picture of putting that old man to death. The old man that you represent is buried in the water in the likeness of Christ's own burial. He talks about that in Romans chapter 6. 
When you're put under the water, that's why sprinkling just doesn't do it. It's not the picture. It's not the likeness, as Paul calls it. But going completely under the water is the likeness of a burial. And it pictures the death of the old man. And you come out of that water ready to be a brand new person. But it's like God who calls those things that will be as though they are. The death sentence may be announced on the old man at your baptism, but we live out the enacting of that death sentence every day for the rest of our lives. As more and more of that old man is truly mortified and is truly put to death. And we're told here the spirit is the key to doing that. If you engage in that battle, then you will be engaging God's spirit. If you choose, and all of these things we'll see today are choices in one way or another. A chance to go one way and not engage God's spirit or a chance to go the other. When we choose to put on our gloves or whatever your metaphor is, I like to think of being a knight, just so you know, because it's me. Think of your own metaphor, whatever you want. Anyway, I like to put on my helmet, like the helmet of salvation, you know, and the sword of the spirit. We'll get to that. Uh, my armor. And I am going to battle. And I'm battling against these things. And when I do, I am engaging God's spirit. That's what God's spirit in us wants to do. It's God through that spirit. I should highlight here from the beginning, in case we have anybody really new, the spirit is not a person. It's not a third person in a trinity. If anybody has any deep and difficult questions about that, Mr. Simone is right over there. And he loves difficult, hard questions. Make him cry. Make him cry with the difficulty of your question. But the Holy Spirit is not a person. There are two persons in the Godhead which God longs to expand to include the rest of us. The Spirit is his power. But he in us, through that Spirit, longs to conquer these things in our lives and work with us in that in that stead. Uh, turn to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. And I find encouragement in this passage. 2 Corinthians in chapter 10. Second Corinthians in chapter 10, and we'll start in verse 3. Second Corinthians 10, verse 3. Here the apostle says, For though we walk in the flesh, and if anyone here is not actually walking in the flesh, we'd notice. I don't know if you'd be a skeleton walking around or something like that. And Well, I guess that's still part of the flesh. So he says, even though we're still walking, here we are in the flesh day to day. He says, we do not walk according to the flesh. We don't allow simply our flesh to determine the doors we choose, the halls we walk down, the steps we take and the length of our stride. We don't walk according to the flesh. Verse four. Uh, sorry. Yeah. Verse four. It says, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. When we engage in pulling down those strongholds, it is God's spirit that engages with us. That is part of what it is there to do. We're using it for its very purpose in us. Verse 5, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. As I understand verse 6 there, is that, the day of the fulfillment of our obedience, the day of Christ's return, 
is that we begin to help him wreak the same changes in the world and to punish disobedience and reward obedience when that day when our obedience is fulfilled. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of high towers in my life. I have a lot of strong arguments that will plead against the things of God. I'm not there yet. Sometimes I'm so pale, people think I glow like a spirit being, but I'm not. Trust me, I'm not. Uh, I am still flesh and blood, very much so. And I see those high towers and I want them down. And as I run up against them, sometimes I have to admit, I feel like Don Quixote, for those who know the story. He, he thinks it's a, it's a dragon. It's really a windmill. You know, the story of Cervantes wrote. And so he tilts against it and then he rams into it and suddenly he realizes it's just a windmill. And sometimes I feel like I just bounce off some of these things. But the Bible talks about how, you know, you may fall six times. You know, the righteous rises. He rises and gets up and goes again. And through the power of God's spirit, those things fall. When we are willing to tilt our lance against the beast, we are engaging God's spirit. That's what it's there for. We have to think, now what magical incantation do I say? Uh, that's what it's there for. It will engage, it'll be a part of that battle, especially if you're doing all of these things. God's power is in us to cast these things down. You know, do you have grudges? Uh, do you have addictions? Do you have bad habits? Well, if you also have God's spirit, then you have what he has given you to go forth, to not hold back. Tilt against, tilt is the old night word for tilting against each other with a lance. I keep saying that. Same about growing up in the pinball era. It doesn't mean whack the machine. It means point the lance towards the enemy and go for it. That's what God's spirit is there for. You know, Mr. O'Gwen gave some really good advice a long time ago that I have tried to apply. To the extent I have applied it successfully, I have seen success. Uh, to the extent my weaknesses or fears have prevented me, I have seen failure until I learned to apply it. And he said that what we feed grows stronger, what we starve grows weaker. If you want to put to death the deeds of the flesh, then you have to commit to starving them. You have to commit to starving them. Let me give a, a, a personal example. When I was, uh, this isn't true confessions time, by the way. Don't worry, it should be pretty sane. We should be okay. Uh, when I was first baptized, I think it was the very first summer I was baptized, actually. I remember being at home uh, for the summer. That's uh, the summer I was baptized. I was home between uh, semesters in college after my freshman year. And I was home with my mom and a friend, and we were watching some comedy on HBO. Now, I know some of you are thinking, oh, you already know it's bad, you know, just because, in fact, it was on, it's HBO. Uh, well, you know, HBO has gotten worse over the years, as I understand. I wouldn't know because I, I avoid it like the plague. However, it was still bad. Part of the thing about cable when it first came out was... There's nasty stuff. They can do nasty stuff that isn't on regular television, uh, which is always part of the poll. Uh, but here I'm sitting with my mom and my friends. So it's a comedy show. And it was a particular comedian who's still popular today, at least to a certain extent. I won't say his name. That might be inappropriate. I don't know. I was going to do something that rhymes with. I'm not even going to rhyme with his name. Anyway, you know, he's a, he's a popular comedian. And back then he was, he was kind of growing in his popularity. It's these HBO shows and stuff that really sort of got him off the ground. And he made this terrible, nasty, raunchy joke 
I tell you how bad it is. Let me tell you. Here's what it is. I'm not going to do that. That would be horrible. It's not appropriate for church. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what it is. But I know when he did, oh, I laughed. Oh, I laughed because it was it was funny. It was just so funny. And my mom laughed and my friend laughed. And please don't think ill of my mom. She wasn't in the church and, and she didn't know. Um, but we all laughed. But I had a thought after that I hadn't had before. Which was, you know, that shouldn't be funny. That if Jesus Christ was sitting right next to me, which is a trope we'll use sometimes to meditate on things, he wouldn't be laughing at that. In fact, he's not sitting right next to me now. He's living in me. And part of me may be laughing at this, but that part of him that is now in me is not. And he doesn't think that's funny. He doesn't even want to hear that. And I realized, had he been sitting next to me at that point, uh, he would have left the room. And I realized not only that I need to leave the room, but I also realized, I thought, well, if I leave the room, I still take this with me. I still think stuff like this is funny. And I don't want to think things like this are funny. And it was before I had the chance to hear Mr. O'Gwim, but it's actually advice he gave that applied here because I did realize it at that time. If I'm going to have any hope of not thinking this is funny one day, I have to starve it. I have to put some distance between me and it. Because there's a part of me that thinks that is hilarious, and that is the carnal part of me. And the more I keep watching it, the more I feed it, the more I'm going to think it's funny. But if I can spend time away from it, the longer I spend away from it, maybe I will give God room in my spirit, his spirit in me as well, to work and change me, where I'll no longer think it's funny. I'll think it's as offensive as he does. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to think like he does. And this verse encouraged me. That was a stronghold in me. I grew up finding those things incredibly entertaining. But I had something in me now that was for the tearing down of strongholds. I'm not saying that one day did it. The next day I came in and maybe they're watching the rerun. I turned it off. Shame, sinners, shame. And mom's saying, get out of the house, you know, or something. It wasn't that. But over time, it has made a difference. Am I completely there yet? No, I am not. I'm not. But am I a whole lot better? Yes, I am. Because I've engaged God's spirit by the mere choice of saying, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. You want to engage God's spirit, the power that made the sun, moon, and stars, and everything? Then make a choice to starve that which needs to starve. And that spirit will be engaged. It's part of what it's there for. All right, let's look at the second way, a second way to engage the spirit. And you've kind of already heard it because it's the flip side of the one we just mentioned. The flip side to mortifying the old man is putting on the new man. That is not just ceasing to disobey, but actively seeking to obey. That is a way in which you engage God's spirit. You don't have to have your fingers crossed while you do it or rub your head and pat your belly or pat your head or rub your belly, or it's not something magical. It's there to be engaged when you do that. When you're seeking to obey, the spirit in you is uh, designed, it's there by, by choice, by God's own planting, to be engaged in that kind of activity. In First Peter chapter 1, First Peter chapter 1.
First Peter chapter one and verse twenty two. Peter says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart. The spirit of God is directly associated with obedience. And when a baptized Christian seeks to obey, God's spirit is engaged in that effort. Changing and transforming us, working however in whatever small ways to make that act a part of who we are. If you turn first uh, again to Acts chapter 5, turn to Acts chapter 5, we'll see this association again. Acts chapter 5. In Acts chapter 5, the apostles are in trouble. Again, they get in trouble a lot. Uh, the truth gets you in trouble if you haven't figured that out yet. And in Acts chapter 5, speaking to the Jewish authorities, Peter and the apostles say in verse 32, concerning the things they've pointed out to them, Acts 5 and verse 32, and we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, which God has given to those who obey him. You know, let's talk a little bit about baptism with that in mind, because we know we have people here who aren't baptized yet. In fact, I was talking to the children's Bible class yesterday and I asked them who wants to be baptized. And thankfully, they all raised their hand. No one said, huh. You know, kind of put his face like that. Never, never no, they all said, woo, me, which is the right answer. Uh, we all want to be a part of God's family. And baptism is how that happens. That's a step that we take. And sometimes you hear from people who just think, well, they're just not good enough. And then what they do is they recognize things like this, that God gives his spirit to those who obey them, but who obey him. At the same time, uh, there's a balance there. And I know in the ministry, we try to, to work with that balance and help somebody understand. We show fruit worthy of repentance. I've had someone ask to say, uh, well, I don't understand. I need God's spirit to really fully obey. And yet if I don't really obey, you know, I don't get God's spirit. You know, what's the deal, man? I don't understand. If I say that, it sounds like a biker with long hair and all the rest. It wasn't. But still, you know, I don't get it. What's the deal? Well, the deal is fruit worthy of repentance. That is, God wants to give his spirit to those who have made a decision that they want to change their life. And that decision will always show itself in actions. All real decisions do. All real decisions show themselves in action. I remember uh, me and another minister counseling with a fellow who was, uh, we discovered over the course of counseling, that he was living with a young woman. We didn't know at the time. I don't think anybody knew. At least they didn't tell us. Uh, we were counseling. And so he's counseling for baptism. And we're talking about, you know, ceasing from sin. And and he says, oh, okay, well, I need to ask then. So I'm currently living with a woman. You know, it's like, oh, well, ding, 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 ding. You know, we have a winner. You know, winner, winner, chicken dinner. So anyway, uh, here we have someone. And he says, so really, do we need to stop? You know what I'm saying? I mean, do we need to, you know, live apart and the rest? And uh, he said, well, 
Yes, yes, you do. Yes, that's uh, you're living in sin. You do need to stop. If you feel guilty because maybe you're providing support or et cetera, you know, we're, we're not saying you say, well, I've got to cut you off or something. Uh, you could also marry her. I don't see why that wasn't being considered an option. But still, it was like, yeah, no, no, I, I, I understand. So I need to move. Wow, that just, but conquering lust is so difficult, he said. You know, I said, I, I, we know it is, but... You have to show fruit worthy of repentance. Moving out won't indicate, I have conquered lust for all time. Men, look unto me as your example. Uh, we're not saying you have to proclaim yourself the champion of conquering lust. We say you have to make a choice that that is the direction you want to go and that will show itself by your actions. But you know what? Moving out, doing something else, crashing on the couch at somebody else's house who's someone who's willing to help and serve while you're figuring out your way. Make the choices that show you desire a better way. Choose the good things. And we didn't see him anymore after that. He decided that God's spirit wasn't something that he really, really wanted because God's spirit is entwined with obedience. In fact, if you think of kind of like water, what is water's natural state? Well, we say that on earth, it seems like uh, liquid uh, because, you know, we had to force it into the freezer to make it make it solid, make it ice. Now, if you're from Wisconsin, maybe its natural state is ice. I have no idea. But at least in in regular climes, you know, liquid seems to be its, uh, its, its natural state, the way we would think of it. God's spirit, its natural state is one of obedience to being, being used and obeying the laws of God and trying to mimic the mind of God, reproduce that mind in us. Uh, if you turn to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, if anyone knows what Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20 says, it should be the people of the living church of God because we heard it so many times from Dr. Roderick C. Meredith. And for good cause... For a good cause. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, it's remind us of something very important. Again, if we've been baptized and have God's spirit in us. And for those who are looking forward to baptizing and being baptized and having God's spirit in them. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. We read, I have been crucified, Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. We know it says better in the old King James, who loved me and gave himself for me. Notice he goes, it's no longer I who live. Now he's not saying Paul's not alive, but not just in terms of who is alive versus dead, but who is, in a sense, directing the ways of my life. Who is calling the shots? Who is determining my joys and my sorrows and what I should prefer and what I should? Who is it who lives in me now? He says, no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And when we choose to seek to obey, when we hear advice from the lectern that's difficult, it's like, oh, that's going to be hard. Oh, why did Mr. McNair, shut up. Don't say that again. You know, that's going to be hard. You're stepping on toe. Now you're meddling, minister. Now you're meddling. Uh, we hear advice that's difficult. We read a booklet. That challenges us with something we should do. We experience something in our marriage one day. Perhaps uh, our wife says an unkind word. Our our husband says an unkind word. Husbands are prone to do that as well. We want to react in kind instead of with kindness. And we know what we should do. The moment we choose the right 
thing. Christ in us is working in that moment. He is engaged. He is engaged to empower it, to help it, and to change who we are by that choice. That is the natural state of God's spirit, is to be involved in obeying, following the will of God, obeying the commandments of God and the law of God. When we're seeking to do those things, it is in its natural state, and the heart of Jesus Christ that is now in the heart of us is pleased and joyful because that's what he did his entire life. It represents the character that he had for all eternity and that he has now at this time as well. So you want to engage God's spirit? Seek to obey. You know, we see actually these first two points, uh, mortifying, the de- mortifying the deeds of the flesh and uh, feeding, if you will, these right deeds, these good choices reflected in Ephesians chapter 4. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 4, we see both of these first points reflected in this passage. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians 4 and verse 20. Starting in verse 20. We read here in Ephesians 4, he's speaking of other things. And he's talking about the new man. And he says in verse 20, but you have not so learned Christ. If indeed you learned him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off according to your former conduct, the old man, which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you may put on the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, I've heard some outside of true Christianity uh, among congregations and uh, fellowships that consider themselves Christian, but simply aren't. And saying, see, that's the thing. I know I sin with my body. I know I do. But in my mind, man, it's all nothing but Jesus. That's it. You know, I have a renewed mind. So, yeah, I'm breaking the commandments with my body, frankly, all the time, you know. But in my mind, I I love them. I love them a lot. But the thing is, the body does what the mind tells it. The body does what the mind tells it. And our actions become a reflection of that. However imperfect, we've, we've read of Paul's struggle in Romans chapter 7, uh, but he talks about there's a, a, a saving from that. There is this spirit. Again, Romans 7, Romans 8, excellent meditation for the days of Pentecost. The body does what the mind tells it. And yes, while our body is corrupt in terms of it's decaying all around us, the mind is renewed. And we are growing more and more like our father in our decisions and our choices and our preferences. Continue verse 25. He says, therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we're members of one another. You know, how many times is it tempting to just twist the truth a little bit, you know, to get more funding for our department because the boss just doesn't understand how important we are. Uh, just so that our friend, we don't want them to feel bad about the bad thing they did. And so we'll tell them it was okay when the Bible says that the wounds of a friend are faithful. Now, how many times will we just slip here and there and not speak truth to our neighbor like we should? Be angry and do not sin, nor let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. 
Let him who stole steal no longer. He doesn't say, go ahead and steal with your body as long as in your mind. You go, oh, I know I shouldn't be stealing. I'm going to enjoy this TV. Uh, in your mind, he says, stop. Obey not just in the body, but in the spirit. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who has need. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And so do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, here we come, all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking, but a Put away from you. Starve that which needs to die. And then verse 32, feed that which needs to live. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. These things are in concert with the Holy Spirit in us. Verse 30. They engage it. It belongs in those environments. But to avoid this, to engage in what we shouldn't, and to avoid those things we should do, is the opposite of engaging. It is denying God's spirit and trying to put it off into a corner. So there's two ways. Starve that which needs to die. Try to mortify the deeds of the flesh and feed that which should live. Seek out the right things to do. All right. A third way to engage God's spirit. A third way to engage God's spirit. We engage God's spirit. We use it when we fast and pray to our Father. When we are seeking his face through fasting and prayer. Now, I'm not saying fasting and prayer, like you're praying without fasting, you're not. You know, you can all when you're praying, but I'm talking about these efforts to seek God, to spend time with Him and communicate with Him. We are engaging God's Spirit. Turn to Romans chapter 8. And we'll look at some verses that have been misunderstood by some in the world here and there. Romans chapter 8. And like I mentioned, I know these things are mundane things. It's like, oh, good, another sermon where I'm being told to pray. That's really, you know, exciting. But that's part of the problem. We don't really see these things the way God sees them. We just think of prayer sometimes as kneeling by our bed or wherever you have your place. And it's it's time where our knees start to hurt. Some of us can't sit down anymore. God knows. You know, God knows. He knows the bones don't work anymore. He's still there. Uh, but, you know, we're kneeling and it's a time we're wondering what to say, you know, things like that. And we don't see it as what it is. It is literally connecting with the creator of all things. Who longs to hear from us, who longs to hear the words of our mouth, who wants to know what we're thinking about. I know this sounds ridiculous, but if you ever go see a movie and talk to your friends about it, is there any reason you can't actually talk to God about what you saw and what you enjoyed and what they should have done differently? Oh, God, did you see the third act? It was terrible. Uh, He wants to spend time with us. He wants to know us. And we're engaging with the creator of everything. And they sound so mundane. It's like, oh, we need to pray. You know, we need to do these things. But this really is how you engage the spirit. If it was some formula up here like, well, you know, you need to dip yourself seven times in the Jordan and we're going to work in church administration. Miss Sue Meredith is going to find good tickets uh, to Israel and we're all going to take turns. We're finally going to engage the spirit. Oh, we'd be all into it like Naaman, right? It's like, okay, it's like a quest. I can do it. And you know what? It's going home and praying. 
and we devalue it. When God's spirit is there waiting to be engaged in these things. In Romans chapter 8 and verse 15. We're reminded here by the inspired words of God through Paul. Verse 15, for you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by God or sonship by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Abba is one of those amazing words in the Bible that they took the time to transliterate and not to just translate so that we would know. Uh, It's one of those childhood words. You know, you have a father. I don't know who your father is and all the rest, uh, but you also have a dad. There's a movie I saw recently. I won't say which one. Some of you probably saw it as well, but that was kind of a key line in the movie uh, where uh, a, a man who raised another is making a point. Uh, he had a father that was his birth father that he never saw, never took care of him, was never there, but he was raised by a man. And the man said, you know, I know you have a father, but you only had one daddy. And that was him. That word daddy is one of those childhood words. You can often tell by the repetition of the syllable. Like wawa, you know, juju for juice. I'm guessing about juju there. Uh, but, you know, dada. I think I've told this story before, so forgive me. I know I'm very repetitive, but... One of my mom's favorite stories she'd tell about me and my sister is about my sister. And how in the middle of the night, she'd hear this voice coming down the hall to her and dad's bedroom. Mama, 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 mama. It's like, ah. You know, she has to get up and go take care of the kid, whatever it is. And who knows what it was. I don't know. You know, drink, you know, pat on the head. I have no idea. It's my sister. could have been anything. But, you know, mama, 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 mama. And every night, there'd be a certain time of night where you'd hear the, Ma, 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 ma. You know, because those those are syllables are are easy for children, and so that's what they say early on. That's why we have. In fact, I was talking at the children's Bible class. What do you call your grandmother? And it's often Nina, Nani, uh, Nini. It's these kind of repetitive syllables. And there was one night where my sister, the voice come down the hall, said, "Dad, dad, 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 dad." dad. My mom said, "All right, that's you. You know, that's that's not me. That's you." But those repetitive syllables, right? These easy words. Abba is not just a word that means father. It is the word for daddy. It is the Aramaic word for dad. And he's saying, if you have this spirit in you, this is dad. A father might be the one who made you. Your dad is the one that wants to spend time with you. And prayer is a chance to engage with your Abba, with your dad. It says in verse 16 that the spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. You know, times when I recognize the most sometimes that I'm a child of God is in prayer. When I when I I, I, I'm talking to my dad. Not all the time. Sometimes he feels distant. I'm like you sometimes. And, you know, we feel do they really does my prayer go to the ceiling and then stop. And and then all the more that's something to talk with him about. In fact, jump down to verse 26. You know, prayer is like the closing of a circuit. We, uh, we with the Spirit, are speaking to one who is Spirit. Uh, and it's like the closing of a circuit. In verse 26, we read, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray uh, for as we ought, but the Spirit itself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now, let me explain how this is sometimes misunderstood. This is often understood like a speaking in tongues phenomenon. I remember the first time I ever encountered that, I was 
talking to a friend or a friend who was going through a difficult time and, and she was a friend at the time, sort of a friend. Anyway, we're in a school bus coming back from a, a theater competition in Texas. And uh, she was sitting in the floor and just, I couldn't tell you, she's just saying a bunch of words kind of quietly. And I was thinking, well, I hope she's okay, you know, like she's going through a conniption or something. I, you know, I wasn't sure. But anyway, so I asked, I said, are you okay? What are you doing? She goes, oh, no, I'm just, I'm praying in tongues. I thought, okay. Well, that's weird. You know, I didn't say it out loud. You know, I just, you know, let her do it there in the dark. Uh, and but for those who've experienced that, I know it's, it feels like a real experience. And I'm not trying to mock that. I've known people that, that it feels so real. That's why the Bible says test the spirits. Because it will feel real, but it doesn't mean it's of God. And notice it talks about things that can't be uttered here. It's not talking about that, but I do feel I know what it's talking about because I've had those times. And I can imagine you have also had at least some of those times. There's times when I have been so afflicted in heart or wrestling with something I don't understand, either something that God is is working in or allowing, or just something where I, I just feel burdened or grieved and want to talk to him about it, or sometimes the opposite. There's times when I've been so overjoyed uh, that I, I can't find the words. And it's, it's odd now, because uh, that's my whole job is words. Words, words, words. I'm so sick of words. Some of you get that joke or this line, it's from a musical. We'll cut that out from the video. We'll make sure that's not in there. Anyway, you know, my whole job is words. Uh, I'm a wordsmith, you know, is to put together words and help other people put together words because the gospel goes out with these words. And editorial, all the words we have just funnel through editorial. And I estimated the number of words once and just about fainted. And yet there's times when I'm praying and surely there's times when you are as well, when you just don't know what to say. There's times when I don't know what the right words are. And I, I know I know I'm feeling something and I don't know what it is. And I can't put together what those words are. And it's frustrating. And then I remember this passage and recognize that God's spirit is in me and he knows. I don't have to worry that I'm not getting the words right. You know, I have friends I talk to and I, you know, I'm married and I have kids and sometimes we don't get each other. You know, it's like, I don't understand. You said this. Yes, I said that. You're supposed to know what I mean. You know, not what I, not what I say. That's your job, right? Just to know what I mean. And yet when I pray, when I'm talking to God, he knows. It's not at the mercy of my smarty brains to figure out the right words. It's because there's a connection there and I am understood every syllable and every thought. And there's times when I get so caught up in trying to say what I'm trying to say that I just pause for a moment and just say, God, you know. You know. You want to engage God's spirit? Pray. Pray. I don't think it's a coincidence that Daniel was known for praying three times a day. And him being so close to God. And I also don't think he did it just out of some sort of due diligence. That it's like, well, I'm supposed to pray three times a day. I owe it to God like an offering, which don't get me wrong. That is a beautiful picture. That is an amazing picture. But Daniel living in, in a sense, the heathen capital of the world, one of the most righteous men that have ever walked the planet, according to the Old Testament. I think he knew he needed that contact. He knew he needed that spirit engaged. And he knew he needed to pray. So you want to engage God's spirit. Again, it's not a magical incantation. It's not something you fill out a form and have to order. One way you can do it 
is to get on your knees and pray. Talk to him. Seek his face. A fourth way that we can engage God's spirit is to stir it and feed it by studying God's word. Stir it and feed it by studying God's word. Now, again, like I'm saying, these things can seem mundane. Oh, he's telling me to study the Bible again. I know, I know I need to study the Bible more. I know I do too. Okay, just so you know, I feel for you. You know, someone uh, told me once uh, that she was feeling difficult for not rolling out of bed and feeling like, I just want to go study my Bible right now. You know, and believe me, when I roll out of bed, I want to roll back up, but gravity doesn't work that way. It's like, how do I roll back into my bed? This is terrible. Every morning, it's terrible. Uh, I get that. I feel that. Sometimes as ministers, we can say, you know, I, I pray three times a day, you know, and I do it only about two hours each, you know, and it was like, wow, how can I ever be there? And you have to recognize we didn't start there. I don't pray two hours each time, three times a day, just so you know. But we got to that point, too, by growing and learning bit by bit, by finding over time more and more joy. I remember when I was, uh, this, is, this is just a quick comment for those who sometimes are frustrated with their self-motivation about studying the Bible. I remember when uh, Mr. Aguin had come to the house and told me the church wanted me to be in the ministry. And I knew what I wanted to say, which was just, wow, I can't believe what I was not expecting it. And I would say, I can't imagine doing anything else. Oh, but I also say, well, okay, you know, I ought to think about it. The Bible talks about, you know, counsel and taking time to think. So I told him, I said, well, I, I probably ought to think about that. He goes, well, you know, count the cost. Good deal. All right. So I was counseling with a friend of mine that already knew that Mr. He knew before I did, apparently. Mr. Aguin was going was gonna to ask. And... I remember telling him, I was like, but, you know, look at Mr. Gwynn and how much he knows and everything he does and the rest. And I, that's not me. You know, I'm not even close. And he said, well, you know, he's been a minister for a while longer. Why don't you give yourself a bit of a break? You know, I was like, oh yeah, okay. That makes, you know, that makes sense. Realizing we grow into these things. All right. We grow into these things. It takes time. It's a whole new way of life. Give yourself a bit of your life to get more used to it. But among the things we strive to get used to is the idea of making God's word a habit. Going to it like we go to breakfast because it's important to us. You know, I, I want to use the same analogy. If this book were like something in a movie, uh, maybe it was a movie called The Book of Wonders and it had a great soundtrack by John Williams and it was some sort of torturous journey. And it was filmed cinematically and you had these people racing to get the book because it would transform them. And, and so they're climbing mountains and they're fighting beasts and the rest. And they, they finally make it to the top of this. and They got to go through all sorts of traps like a Indiana Jones sort of thing. And in there is this book and it's sort of floating above a pedestal. Oh, 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 you know, like that. And there's light shining on it and they get to it and they grab it. And then lightning pours out of it and it's hitting their body, but it's supposed to be good somehow. And they start glowing and, and they're transformed into something i have no idea what we think wow i want to find that book and yet the bible we just open it like this that was it you know the comic books i used to waste my time with as a kid they open pretty similarly right you just plop and, and there it is lightning doesn't shoot out of it we don't hear the voice of god ringing through the room and shaking the walls and yet there's no book of fiction that ever compares. There's nothing like this. Do we understand how precious this is in all of existence? 
It is the mind of God that he has tried to transcribe to some extent for us to learn how he thinks and what he's changing us into and how he wants us to live. It is literally the most amazing text that has ever existed in the history, not just of mankind, but anything. It's the inspired word of God. It just seems like just a book. And it isn't. It is so much more. If you turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Jesus Christ has some words here that I've meditated on before. John chapter 6. And that if you look for the connection more and more in the Bible, you do find it. At least I know I I have found it. In John chapter 6. And it's a long discourse. We're just going to jump into it close to the bottom, starting at uh, verse 59. We'll get a little bit of context. He was talking about uh, the bread of life, and he's teaching these things. And it says in verse 59, he said, these things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Now, his talk was difficult for people. Talk about, you know, I'm the bread of life. You've got to eat the bread of life and all the rest. And people were befuddled. And it just, it was something they struggled with. Is this guy saying we're supposed to eat him? Like take a bite out of his arm, you know? And they, they recognize some of what he's saying. was like, you know, manna. We'd love to have manna. It was a beautiful miracle. And now he's saying that, man, the people that ate manna, they are dead. And that makes sense. But what do we eat instead? And somehow it's supposed to be him. And he came down from heaven. And they struggled with these things. And there's no guarantee in the responses that follow the apostles themselves really understood. I am a Texas Aggie. I come from, I went to school at Texas A&M. We used to call it God's other college. Uh, and, you know, we were, the role Texas A&M played in Texas was we were the college everybody made fun of. Because they always make fun of the best. Right? Uh, but anyway, so the people would make fun of us. You know, we're supposed to be dumb and all the rest. There's a lot of Aggie joke books out there. But you know who's buy, making and selling the Aggie joke books? The Aggies. Uh, you know, so anyway, we know what we're doing. But I like to think the apostles seem to me like a bunch of Texas Aggies. It's like, I don't get it, you know. Does someone bring him food to eat? I don't understand. Uh, it just seems like they're not always putting two and two together. Uh, but they do eventually. And so they heard these same things, and it was just as hard for them as it was hard for everybody else. So verse 60, it says, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, He said to them, does this offend you? Do these things I'm saying offend you? He says, what then if you should see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? You know, all this stuff is going to become clear to you. Then it says in verse 63, it is the spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. You engage God's spirit in a special way when you are studying this book. Now, I mean, the words are ink, at least on my paper, they're ink. Some of you are using a computer Bible and it's electrons, you know, flashing around in your machine that's making the words glow. But in terms of the intent and everything they mean, he says these words are spirit and they are life. You engage God's spirit when you engage this book. There's a reason Dr. Meredith emphasized over and over and over and over and over Feed on Christ. Take it in. It needs to be in you. These words. 
back, let's turn to Ephesians and see just one of the many. It's actually a worthwhile Bible study if you ever do it yourself. Ephesians chapter 6. We see some of these connections between uh, uh, the words and the spirit. In Ephesians chapter 6, we'll just take a look at a couple. Ephesians 6 and verse 17. Speaking of the armor of God, we're told, Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. What is the sword of the Spirit, the only offensive weapon in our armor? It's the word of God. If we don't dive into the word of God, don't make it a part of who we are, we're unarmed as Christians. So take the sword of the spirit, Ephesians six seventeen, which is the word of God. Here's this association. Uh, similarly, in, in Ephesians, just a chapter earlier, chapter 5, in the instructions to wives. And actually, we have to understand as husbands, these are instructions to us as well, not just understanding uh, the commands to our wife, but recognizing we are the bride of Christ. Uh, and so these are instructions for us as well. Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25 Sorry, actually starting with the instruction to husbands. Sorry, I thought it was the instruction to wives. Uh, it's actually the instruction to husbands here. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Why did he do that? Verse 26. That he might sanctify. What does that mean, sanctify? To set apart. To make holy. That's what God's spirit in us does. It sets us apart and makes us holy. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Washing of water by the word. There's that connection between sanctification, holiness, and the word. What does, God, what does Jesus Christ say in John 17, 17? He's asked God to sanctify us by the truth. His word is truth. God's word is very much tied into sanctification, holiness, and his spirit. If we want to engage God's spirit, be in God's word. If someone is trying to engage God's spirit in their life, they just don't feel they're doing it, then one of the things I'd always be prompted to ask is, how much are you into God's word? And it doesn't have to be a specific topic or something like that. Uh, sometimes you find gems in God's word because you weren't studying a particular topic. There's passages of the Bible you would never read if you were choosing a topic. And then you will discover it and never having expected it just because you were reading some different passage before. Are we spending time in it? Do we bathe ourselves in it? I was going to ask a question. How many of us shower daily? Raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. Uh, my kids and I, there's a joke from a, a TV show we like where some guys say, I'm not dirty. I, I showered yesterday. The other guy says, you know, that's the day before today, right? You know, it's not, you know, anyway, the joke. Uh, you know, we take showers. I try to take showers every day. Um, we eat every day. Boy, howdy. I know it if I miss a meal, right? I mean, I look like it, but I do. I, I want that food. You know, I, I go that day. At the end of atonement, I am hungry. And don't get me wrong. There's a lot of good advice out there about breaking it softly and using some watermelon or something. Steak, steak, steak. You know, I want to break it with something real. Something that was alive and got killed just for me, you know, and I'm breaking my fast. Might be terrible advice, but that's just, that's just me. I will be upfront and honest. When I miss those meals, I know it. And yet, at the same time, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Matthew 4.4, Luke 4.4, they say essentially the same thing. You know, I miss a day without my Wheaties. I don't eat Wheaties, but you know, something for breakfast. And I'll notice. Why don't I notice when I miss this? I should. 
I should. It is more essential to us. Yeah, the Wheaties will feed my blood, if you will, but this feeds my spirit. You want to engage God's spirit? Dive into this book. Well, I don't know about a pattern or, you know, a study program or something. Not only do I, can I tell you where you can get some really good literature that will help you do that, uh, but you're also surrounded by ministry. Talk to Mr. Simone. Talk to Mr. McNair. Engage with them. Let them give you suggestions. Oh, that's, you know, if you're a man, sometimes, sometimes men don't like to ask for advice. Ladies, you probably already figured this out in your marriage. And, uh, you know, oh, no, you know, asking for advice feels like a failure because we couldn't figure it out ourselves. You know, ask, cut it out. You know, ask for advice. You know, humble yourself and just say, you know, I study my Bible all the time, Mr. McNair. I mean, really, all the time. But, you know, if you have any advice, it's not that I need it or anything. But, you know, if you want to you just toss a nugget in my way, I'd, I'd take it. I'd, I'd think about it, you know. Ask. Just ask. Let us suggest some ideas. You know, we can do that. Uh, at the very least, a, a friend of mine once said, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. Right? I know everything worth doing is worth doing right, but you know what? Anything worth doing often is also worth doing poorly. Someone who's reading his Bible and not really going a particular order, but is at least cracking open the book every day to read something, is yards above the one who isn't opening it at all. You want to engage God's spirit? Then don't make excuses why it's not there. Engage in this book. That is one of the things any of us can do. All right, we're down to the last two things. And this one, I get to cheat a little bit. A fifth way, the first one was about putting aside the deeds of the flesh and mortifying them. Uh, The second was about engaging uh, in doing the right thing, actually seeking to obey God and his laws and his ways. Uh, The third was about praying, fasting, seeking God and to connect with him in that way. The fourth was about reading God's word and being in it. The fifth is that we engage God's spirit when we fellowship and spend time with one another. When we fellowship and engage with each other. People who also bear God's spirit like we do. Now, I'm not going to go into this in a great deal of depth. I'm going to look at just one passage. But if you'll turn to Acts chapter 4, and I can skimp on this a little bit for two good reasons. Uh, One, the sermon coming up for the PM portion today is going to go into this in more depth. Uh, so Mr. McNair will be covering things very intimately related to this topic of our interactions with each other uh, and fellowshipping with each other. Secondly, if you received a living church news, uh, which you should have, you didn't have, let Mr. Uh, let Mr. Bonjour know or someone, let us know. We want to fix it. We want you to get it. Uh, but there's an article there by Mr. Gary Amon called Being of One Mind. And he really goes into, he, he strives to go into this real beautiful depth about the kind of uh, unity and spirit and fellowship that should be in place amongst God's people. I highly encourage you uh, to read that. He worked very hard on that, and it's a, it's a beautiful article. I just want to give an example of the New Testament church. If you look in Acts chapter 4, it's a beautiful description. Acts chapter 4 and verse 32 we read in verse 32 of Acts 4, Now the multitude of those who believed were all were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. It was not communism. Uh, it was a matter that everyone intimately cared about the needs of the other. And if there was a need, then it was on everyone's mind, how do we fill it? There were a lot of people there that were lingering after Pentecost. They'd come from lands all around, and nobody wanted to go back home. 
Nobody wanted to go to a land where there were no others like them. They wanted to be there with their new brothers and sisters. They'd come to spend perhaps a week and wanted to stay for a lifetime. And they wanted to try and make that happen as much as they could. It's an amazing time. Uh, Verse 33, and it says, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great peace was upon them all. We are engaging in God's spirit when we are seeking to fellowship with each other. If you're striving to rid yourself of an old grudge to improve fellowship, then you are engaging God's spirit. If you're seeking out your brother and your sister and working on repairing a relationship, you are engaging God's spirit. If you are not seeking to rid yourself of that grudge and that bitterness and that difficulty, Jesus Christ in you is waiting to work on that. Engage. Do it. Do it. So I won't spend time on that one. It'll allow me to get to number six. Uh, And that is fellowship with each other. When we do, we are engaging God's spirit. Finally, we engage in God's spirit when we participate in the work. We engage in God's spirit when we participate in the work. Now, I think I'm not going to vouch for all of Mr. DeSimone's uh, percentages. Had it been Mr. Ames, we would probably say they're exactly right. But his are probably, you know, plus or minus 0.27%, you know, anywhere in there. But did you notice, and this is my experience as well, what was my first contact with the church? It was through a person in the church. Now, what did God use to bring me into the church through that person? It was the telecast. Uh, it was the booklets that they had up in their closet in a shoebox. But what was my very first? Why did I even look at the telecast to begin with? I've told this story before. It's because of someone I knew who was in the church. You know, the idea that we can't be engaged in some way is wrong. And we see that we're actually in Acts chapter 4. Let's go ahead and read this particular passage of a people who were engaged in the work. We've often said we want God's spirit more powerfully in the church. Mr. Meredith was on a mission to try to help us be the kind of church in which he could manifest powerful gifts. Uh, healing. I wouldn't mind right speaking in tongues. I'd love to go to Japan and speak Japanese. That would be fantastic. I'm not going to go to Japan and speak gibberish like they do on these television Pentecostal shows. But go to Japan and speak Japanese? Oh, I would love that. Domo arigato. You know, I mean, yes, I would. I would love to do that. Mr. Roboto, it's, it's by the, all the Japanese. I know a little bit of Japanese. That's the half of it. Uh, I would love to do that. I'd love to go to Mexico and speak Spanish. I'd love to go to Germany and speak German. We love to see more healings. We love to see miracles in the church. And Dr. Merritt had a passion for encouraging us to be such a church where that would be so. One of the ingredients to that is a focus on the work. Those organizations out there that claim to be part of the church of God but don't focus on the work of God will never have that in the same way, at least if I understand Scripture properly. Like, for instance, look in Acts chapter 4. There's a prayer here in the first century church. We see in Acts chapter 4 and verse 23. The apostles were in trouble. (laughs) They're very good at getting into trouble. And in verse 23, we see they go to their companions. That is the church. You know, imagine some of us, you know, uh, coming back here and talking to y'all and reporting what they did to us at the TWP 
in, you know, Tennessee or in Oregon. Uh, maybe rocks were pelted at us or something like that. And we're talking to you. And so it says what they did. Verse 24. It says, so uh, when they heard that they raised their voice, sorry, when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Notice how infused with uh, their prayer is with scripture. They had, no, they're praying, they're engaging God's spirit. They've got God's scripture in their hearts and minds. It's coming out in their prayers. Verse 27, for truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, here's what the next verse does not say. This is what I always have to remember. It doesn't say, now, Lord, look on their threats and protect us from those threats and keep us safe. Watch over your people and protect us from all harm and let no evil come upon us. Don't get me wrong. That is a valid and right thing to pray. If you're not praying to be protected from the evil of this world, you are making a mistake because the evil one of this world does want to do you harm. And perhaps their prayer was richer than this. And this is only a summary, but notice where the focus is for them. It says in verse 29, rather, now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. It was about the work. Why did they want signs to be done for the work? Why did they want healings for the work? They were a church focused on the fact they had a mission and they had a purpose. And they said, God, please grant to us strength and boldness. Not to find the right cave to hide into, but to do your work. Their mind was on never being allowed to shirk back from that which God had asked of all of them. And that's not, it says the whole assembly was praying these things. This isn't just the apostles. This was all the elders. This is all the deacons. This is all the people that had no title or ordination whatsoever because they all cared about this. And they all had a stake in this. And then they all had a stake in the result. And it says in verse 31, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God with boldness. God's spirit in you, God's spirit in me wants to connect with the work. Jesus Christ said, my food, my sustenance, that what keeps me alive from day to day is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. The spirit in us starves to death. For lack of the work, if it is not there. And those leaders out there claiming to be leaders of a church of God and not involving their people in the work are doing their best, whether they know it or not, to kill off parts of the body of Christ. By not giving that body its food. I am so grateful to be in a church. That understands the necessity of the work. We want to engage God's spirit. Pray about the things Jesus Christ cares about. Which includes his work. Pray for the telecast. Pray for the articles. There are people writing articles today. That are terrified of writing. They're terrified. It's like oh, I don't write very well. you know. And they're working hard. And they're praying that God will bless it. You know what makes a difference? That you're praying God will bless them as well. 
that you're praying God will move that ballpoint pen in their hand. Some of them don't even use computers. They will use that ballpoint pen in their hand to put together notes and put together something that God might use to move somebody and bring him into his body. We want to engage God's spirit. We see the example right here. Then care about and be engaged in the work. God is doing more than just giving us a name badge. Having God's spirit is more than just as a hello, I'm a Christian. It's not just something to identify us. It is being used to transform us. I thank God that the person I will be is not the person I am today. And I thank God I even have the chance to experience a tiny bit of that every single day to an increasing extent. This is a day for thanking God that he has given us of himself and we have his spirit. But the best way to say thank you to God is to use what he's given. Let's all of us plan to engage God's spirit.